Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, that, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were bewildered completely throughout that, I don't blame you. But I'd also like to put in, a, put in a, an ad for Bible study. Because if you didn't know what was going on there, you would learn it all in our Bible study. Let us pray. Lord God, the truth is we try to cobble together coverings, coverings for our lives, coverings for brokenness, for depression, for sin and self-destruction. We know, O oh Lord, that nothing can truly cover these. We pray, Lord, by your power, the power of your Holy Spirit, you might cover us instead in grace. And that we may be your children, alive. Amen. So today we continue our Genesis sermon series with Adam and Eve, although if you notice, they're not quite Adam and Eve yet. They're man and woman. And as the Bible narrates it, the first man and woman are shaped out of the dirt and placed into a garden called Eden. Eden meaning paradise or something like that. Here God gives them two tasks. The first being to till and care for the garden and the second to be fruitful and multiply. And there's only one rule. Of all the thousands of trees... Don't eat that one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they eat that one, God says, they will die. It's poison. So here's the deal, God says. All you got to do is cooperatively care for this lush, paradisical wonderland, hand in hand with your creator. Just don't eat from that one tree. And also... You know, spend the rest of your time making babies, which, you know, this all sounds like a pretty good deal to me, if you ask me. <laughs> so much for that, though. So much for that, though. A chapter later, the good times cease their rolling. A whisper or two slithers into their ears, causing them to doubt the whole arrangement. 
the fruit of every single tree of the garden, but one is no longer enough. The big guy must have been holding back, keeping the knowledge of good and evil in his own private reserve. This is the stuff that made God God, so it must be off bounds, not because they'll die, but because he just doesn't want competition for the role of God, which is probably somewhat true. So they go for it. They pluck, they bite, they chew, they gulp it all down, but it doesn't work the way that they thought it would. The fruit opens their eyes, and suddenly they see themselves the way God sees them. They gaze downward at their bodies in their fullness, in all their weakness, fragility, and complete vulnerability. They see that they are animals at the mercy of time, sickness, disease, and death. None of this occurred to them when they were tucked innocently in the womb-like safety of God's divine presence, but like 12-year-olds, they're insisting, like 12-year-olds insisting they're ready to be trusted with the car keys. They just aren't ready. And by the time they realize that they're not ready, they're already on the highway and in fifth gear, barreling down, facing a head-on collision. So they try their best to cover it up, but there's no leaf big enough to block out their crippling shame. They duck and hide, but there's no shrub thick enough to block out their fear. Death is at the door. And they're found out, of course, because, you know, it's God. God comes calling, where are you? And easily finds them. I heard the sound of you in the garden Adam replies, and I hid myself because I was naked and afraid. When their interrogated fear flares up again, Adam blames Eve, of course. And then Adam blames God for creating. He's like, oh, you're the one who created her, and you know. Eve blames the snake, of course. But God being God, again, knows the truth. The only boundary there was set for their protection has been violated. Remember, thousands and thousands of trees, but one. They can't untaste what they've tasted. They can't unlearn what they've learned. They must now leave the harmony of the garden, this place of total communion with God, and journey into a world of increased pain and suffering, gender-based domination, and backbreaking labor. And alienated, for, alienated from each other, their creator, and the world that God created. All the while, temptation snake-like will, con- snake-like will constantly nip at their heels. And the gates are locked, though. And there's no going back to the time before. There's no going back to Eden. Now, the Bible's contention is that this story isn't mere fiction or fairy tale, nor is it straightforward history or science. This story is the true human story, our story, that once upon a time beyond human memory, life wasn't the way that it is now like two-year-olds dashing from one side of the beach to the other, bathing suit free, 
we lived in a tightly knit, childlike communion with our creator, with each other and the created world. To be clear, this paradise wasn't perfect. The Bible doesn't suggest that God's work of creation was seven days and done, but it was ongoing and continues to this day. But it does suggest that there was a time where our lives weren't dominated by shame, hurt, struggle, or domination in the ways that they are now. And death didn't stalk around every corner, nor did it drive or motivate our decisions as human beings. But then something went wrong. Propelled by doubt, we moved from a posture of complete trust to skepticism. Desiring to be more than the fragile, limited creatures we are, we grasped after good and evil as if we had the capacity to truly know the difference. We went from walking the path lovingly set for us to making our own way that found us lost in the wilderness, only to find the gates of paradise shut behind us. And on account of the world we now find ourselves wandering is characterized by shame, fear, and the total reality of death. Patriarchy, poverty, and slavery. People work their fingers to the bone. Sexual abuse and broken families and dysfunctional communities. Atomic bombs and climate change. Residential school graveyards and war memorials. The Bible tells us that things ain't supposed to be this way. Things were never perfect, but they could have been different, and they should have been different. Only there was a short circuit up the human chain that made it the way it is, rather than the way that it should be. And we know it. We know it inside of ourselves. We know because there's something in us that knows it isn't supposed to be this way. Things could be different. We know that we're stardust, we're golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. With apologies, of course, to Joni Mitchell. Is there something going on with my microphone? Let's try this one. Okay. Where were we? Joni Mitchell. We've got to get back. Back to Joni Mitchell. How's this sound? Is that good? Good. Every dream of a better society, every desire for sobriety, every social movement. Is that one not working either? What's going on? Every... Every social movement and every redemptive moment is a reminder of our Edenic origins, of our original divine intent and destiny. But the truth is that we can't, just can't seem to get back on track. Again, we can't seem to overcome our internal deficiencies even. I mean, think about your own life and about just how impossible it is to actually change something about yourself. You know what it's like. And we're talking about this on a grand, global, historical scale. No matter how knowledgeable or advanced we may get, there's no fig leaf 
big enough to cover us up, no bush tall enough to hide what Christian tradition has called original sin. We know it's not supposed to be this way, but no matter what we do, we can't find our way home. We can't claw our way back through Eden's gates. There's no getting back to the garden. Again, sorry, Joni. No matter how hard we try. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. Uh, thanks for being such a downer, Ryan. We're coming out of COVID. I came to church to be inspired. If I wanted to be depressed by the other depravity of our human situation, I would have just scaled, scrolled Facebook for this hour. Uh, nice bleak picture you've painted there. But this is one of the things about the Bible, though. I mean, it has no trouble staring truth and trouble in the face, right? That's the thing about Christianity. The human condition is totally exposed. There's no downplaying our brokenness. We're naked, we're mortal, afraid, living east of Eden. We're dust to dust, and to dust we shall return. It's all in Scripture, and it's all out in the open for us to see. It's all there on the table, right? But there is a difference for us, though, when we gather as the people of God. There's a difference for the people of Jesus. For us, this knowledge may be difficult, but it's not debilitating, depressing, or devastating. Because as deeply troubling as the truth is, we hold a deeper truth that makes the trouble bearable, and more than bearable, even. And you know, it's all in this tender little detail found in verse 21 of our scripture passage, right? As Adam and Eve are leaving the garden, setting out on the long, snaking trail of civilization, you'll notice that God, it says, God made garments of skins for the man and the wife and clothed them. Where Adam and Eve tried and failed to remedy the situation on their own, sort of pitifully. I mean, like, if you know anything about fig leaves, try to sew some of those together. Make yourself a loincloth. It doesn't work very well. Not that I know from experience or something. <laughs> but God doesn't leave them to their sad, own sad devices. God sews them animal skins. Right? God sews them something more durable than figs. They're covered in divine grace, clothed against the harshest elements of the fallen world. The world they face isn't the way that it's supposed to be. There's no going back to Eden, but God doesn't abandon them. God doesn't say, well, get out, have fun. God outfits them for the world as it is. And that's the deeper truth for us that makes the truth about the world in our lives bearable. This is the way we can journey with Adam and Eve in this fallen world of ours without giving in to despair. We know that we can't cover our nakedness, our sin, our guilt, our fear of shame. We know we can't reverse the tide of human history. We can't go back to Eden. Some of worst history's worst atrocities, by the way, have happened when we've thought that we could bust our way back into Eden. 
But we believe that now we are not abandoned or forsaken. We're not doomed to our own destruction or fated to wander this way alone or forever. And it's all on account of God. Sunday school answer for the win, yet again. It's all on account of the God we've got. God is the reason. God's the reason why we believe that this fallen world is the arena of an ancient, powerful blessing in spite of its appearance, sometimes to the contrary. We believe that in spite of our nakedness, shame, and self-destruction, we as individuals and as humanity as a whole are draped in, immersed in a grace that the worst of our world can never negate or destroy. It's durable like animal skins. And not only does this God hide our nakedness, we believe that in Jesus Christ, this God has covered himself in our fear and shame. The shame that characterizes our own fallen flesh and bone. The one who had his garments torn was stripped naked and met death on a cross is God with us outside the garden and carrying our burdens and bearing the consequences of our sin and the sin of our ancestors in his own body. And in his resurrection too, it's not even just God with us. In his resurrection, God is for us. We're given a sneak preview of his promise to end our exile for good, not by bringing us back to a garden in the way that it once was way back then, but by one day raising us from death and weaving an Eden out of every inch of the universe. With God, we're decked out in garments durable enough to hold the very worst the world has at bay until God's garden footsteps ring out in every nook and cranny of creation. And that, my friends, is good news if I ever heard it. I mean, see, I'm not going to be a complete downer here. Because there's always good news, or they should be. If you go to a church, you don't hear good news, probably not the church you should go to. No offense to them. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that we live in a fallen world. The great 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once said that original sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. That is to say, the world ain't the way it's supposed to be. And the evidence is all around. One look at the news, one peek into the depth of our own hearts, and we know that that's true. It ought to be different. We ought to, we ought to be different. We all know this and long for it to be otherwise and the bad news is that we just can't go back to a time of innocence. There's nothing we can do to cover it up. Nor we can, mus can we muscle our way into Eden by our own wisdom, ingenuity, or brute strength. The bad news is that there's simply no going back to the garden. The good news is, though, again, remember, good news, bad news, bad news, good news, is that even in our fallenness, even in our nakedness, even in our self-propelled exile and wandering from our original intent 
we have been clothed in the eternal mercy of the living God. From before the beginning of time, God has been with us and for us. This not only makes this world in all its anguish bearable, it makes it beautiful. And from day one, God has been with you in your struggle, in your pain, and for you in overcoming your sin and your shame. It not only makes our lives livable, it makes them lovely. Broken, yes, but beautiful and blessed just the same. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and there may be no way going back, but it's also not the way it has to be or the way it's going to be because there's always a future with the God who walked in the garden in the morning. There's always a future with the God who walks the earth in Jesus Christ. And for this, thanks be to God. Amen. Great is thy faithfulness. Please sing with me if you're at home and or hum along here at church. <laughs> Great is thy 